Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and the title of tonight's message is The God-Driven Church. I will not speak on the purpose-driven church based on someone very popular down south, but we're going to let our purpose is first and foremost to love and to glorify God. So we're going to talk about what a God-driven church is, and we're going to base it not upon any recent study of what people want, but based on a study of the Word of God as found in this model church here, the church at Thessalonica, and we're going to be looking at chapter number one of First Thessalonians. All right, let's go ahead and stand as we read the Word of God, First Thessalonians chapter one tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of God and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing upon the teaching of your word tonight. May the desire be of Brian Baptist Church to be a God-driven church, a church that desires most, foremost, and most of all to glorify you in all that they do. Help us, Lord, to look at this church given to us in your word, the church at Thessalonica, and see what the ingredients are of a God-driven church. That this would be true not only of the church at Thessalonica, but this church tonight, and every true Bible-believing Baptist church. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified as your truth is preached tonight. For we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight, I want to preach a message to motivate us, that is, to motivate the Brian Baptist Church to be truly a God-driven church. We know that man can and does build booming churches, but only God can build truly a biblical church. A man-built church seeks to accomplish man's goals, using man's means and strives, whether consciously or not, ultimately for man's glory. The latter, a God-built church, has the Spirit of God as its energy, the Word of God as its most precious jewel, 
and the glory of God as its supreme goal. We see the effects of a man, the man-built ministry all around us. Many churches have become nothing more than entertainment centers, giving slick performances to growing memorized customers and growing unproductive churchgoers. Such devices may bring people into the church, but they do not transform them once they have arrived. By looking to the world for signals, many modern-day churches are suffering from an identity crisis. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing and who they really are. Some see the effective church as being consumer-driven. That is to say, we should survey our, target, our, target, our targeting market and discover what people desire. And based upon what they desire, then we give it to them in the same way a businessman would, an entrepreneur who's going to a city. This is like having a patient writing the prescription for himself, all the while unaware of his real illness. Others see the church as culture-driven. This approach seeks to bring the world's forms of entertainment into the church in order to stimulate outreach. Take the culture's forms of amusement. Add society's latest trends and put a spiritual spin on it. Whether it be changing from preaching to the talk show format, whatever the people want that, give them. Whatever you could do, as long as you win them, that is ultimately the goal. doesn't matter how you do it, as long as it gets done. God is just interested in the ends and not the means, which is not true. God has given us both the way to do it, what to do, and how to do it found in His Word. We see this. I, had a, I have a friend who I spoke to, and the church was in the San Jose area. And on paper, they were certainly very doctrinally strong and straight in many areas. They decided because they wanted to outreach to the inner city and reach the Latino community, that they were going to somehow, they had to bring them in. And you, you simply can't bring in those in the Latino community by going out there and reaching out. You have to do something in order to really bring them in. So they decided they're going to have a rap concert. They're going to bring, bring in Calvinistic rappers. I guess they only have five points to hit, I guess. I don't know. But they would come and somehow they would use the music to reach the youth. But music has never been a means to reach people. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That means the Gentile. Whether he be black, Hispanic, Filipino, you name it. That same gospel crosses cultures and can bring a man who is dead in sin and trespasses and by the power of God can bring him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. People should see little, if any, difference between the latest rock video or nightclub ensemble Broadway production. They want to bring that into the church in order to make the church appealing. So others envision the church as being driven by felt needs. In other words, address the apparent surface needs of people. Tell them how to find self-esteem. Interesting, the Bible never talks about self-esteem. In fact, the Bible assumes that men already love themselves. One of the marks of the last days would be that men would be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. But nevertheless, tell them how to find self-esteem psychological significance, and personal success. Seven points to making it rich, and boy, you would have a packed house. 
Don't bore them with long discourses on the Bible. And whatever you do, don't mention the S-word sin. As one smiling preacher who believes your best life is now said on Larry King. And others with good intentions want to be purpose-driven. Draft your church's vision statement. Determine your objectives. Define your long-term strategies. Target a consumer group. Develop a marketing plan. And you are in business. The gospel light is being replaced with gospel light, L-I-T-E. Preaching is being replaced with performance. Exposition with entertainment. Sound doctrine with sound checks. The upper room for the supper room. Instead of speaking of the unfolding drama of redemption, they're just plain old-fashioned drama. What sets the church apart is that she's not doing the business of man, but the business of the one who founded her, the business of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, she's to be focused on a different bottom line that only can be reached by different biblical means. By His Word, God Himself must equip enable and energize and empower his church if she's to be what he desires her to be. Ultimately, God must be the driving force of the church, bringing his glorious presence and his all-sufficient power to bless his word as it goes forth. The God-driven church is one built by God himself. Thus, it is not a corporation, but a congregation. Not a business, but a body. Not a factory, but a family. In such a church, God is working primarily, not through hyped events, promotions, or entertainment, but through His Word and by His Spirit in the lives of converted men and women. Let us never forget that God anoints people, not plans. God indwells believers, not buildings. God fills preachers, not performers. As we search the Scripture for God's design for the church, I think of no better place than to look to the church at Thessalonica. In Acts chapter 17, we know that Paul went there in his second missionary trip, preached the word of God, and saw men and women saved, scripturally baptized them, and formed them into a local New Testament church. Although it was compromised of many people who were imperfect, certainly, it was nevertheless a place where God's Spirit dwelled, where it was a church that was very much God-driven. So what does a God-centered church look like? What are the marks of such a church? Interesting that the Bible never makes mention of how big they are. We don't know. They probably never published their numbers in Sword of the Lord. We don't know how big they are. What was their ministry style? What were their long-term strategies? The Bible doesn't tell us the color of their building. The Bible doesn't tell us how much they had a little bit or a lot of special music. We don't know if they had a quartet singing on certain nights. We don't know anything about it. But what we do need to know is found in the Word of God. As we consider this first chapter, tonight I want to identify several marks of a God-driven church from the Word of God. The first mark we want to see tonight is found in verse 1, and that is, Converted hearts. Converted hearts. Let us look together at verse number 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and to the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the first mark of any church that honors the Lord Jesus Christ is that its membership is made up of those who are savingly united to Jesus Christ in saving faith. That is, that is to say, it is a converted church membership. Its members are not born, or if they're not born from above, then the church would be nothing less than a religious country club. The miracle of the new birth places all believers in union with God, part of the family of God. And through scriptural baptism administered by the local church, and then they become members of that local church, the body of Christ. Possessing a vital spiritual union with the Godhead. This church was identified as being in God the Father. In the Lord Jesus Christ. The small preposition in is very important. To be in God means that you've entered into a personal relationship with God through faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the sovereign work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, every redeemed sinner is instantly united to God through faith in Christ. This oneness results in a dynamic fusion between the believer and the living God through Jesus Christ. Thus, the church is more than an organization. It is a living organism through which the life of God flows. This infusion of divine life into regenerated hearts is what happened in Acts chapter 17. As Paul entered the city, he went into the synagogue and reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. He went unto those and preached the gospel out of the word of God. Because of the purity of the truth preached by Paul and the work of the Spirit of God, this church at Thessalonica was in the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, this reality is far from true for the vast numbers of many congregations that dot our landscape Many, if not most, churches are filled with fine, outstanding religious people who have never been born again. They profess to know Christ, but they do not possess Christ. They have the facts of the gospel, but not faith in it. They know a little bit about the plan of salvation, but not truly the man of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. They may have even walked an aisle, shook a hand, been baptized, went through some religious ritual where someone told them they were saved, but yet their lives betrayed the ultimate reality that they're unconverted. They may have outwardly reformed, but have never been truly inwardly born, reborn. They have never, they may have turned over a new leaf, but they've never received the new life that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result, they attend church in an unconverted state, self-deceived and thinking they were saved when they really are not. Ears are then tickled, back scratched, palms greased, egos pampered, all the while while bulging numbers, not wanting to exclude anybody from membership. Blinded to their own sinful bankruptcy, they never come to Jesus Christ broken over their sin, over the fact that they're totally depraved, that they're undone before a thrice holy God. Therefore, never coming to true biblical repentance and faith in the crucified, risen Son of God. They may have been sprinkled, baptized, did something ritually, but yet they're unconverted. Yet the mark of a true God-driven church is that men and women have come to a true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first mark 
that we look at a God-driven church. It is a church made up of individuals who have come to a saving union in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in Him. Ah, but if they have been converted, and that's what it means to be in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ, those whom God converts, God always changes. So the second mark is not only that they are converted hearts there, the God-driven church, number two, has changed lives. Changed lives. That's what we find here in verses 2 and 3 in the church at Thessalonica. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Truly converted hearts will certainly lead converted lives. Not perfect lives, but lives that are different from the lives they used to live before they were saved. Salvation is the root, but sanctification is the fruit when salvation comes to a man or woman's life. With an overflowing heart of gratitude, the apostle offers thanks to God. He doesn't offer thanks to God necessarily for their new building, for the well-structured programs or elaborate productions. But he thanks God that their lives have been changed, that they've been converted by the grace of God, and therefore their lives have changed by the grace of God. Paul offers thanksgiving for their faith, for their love, and for their hope. These three spiritual virtues provide clear evidence of their genuine, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. An authentic commitment to Christ will always manifest itself in a change that clearly, clearly bears this evidence, this cluster of fruit of faith, love, and hope. While the Bible does not teach a work salvation, but does affirm that salvation always results in works in the life. So let's consider these three virtues, faith, love, and hope. Paul first commends this church, he says here, for their work of faith. Meaning he recognizes that it was their personal faith in Jesus Christ which activated their service for the Lord. They did not serve the Lord just for the betterment of community. They didn't serve the Lord just because they had to do some good philanthropical work in order to be seen of men. They did work for God because they had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As James put it, faith without works is dead. So he talks about their work of faith, how because of their faith in Jesus, works are abounding in their life. And then the apostle affirms their labor of love, meaning their labor in the gospel was prompted by their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. This word translated labor means wearisome toil extraordinary effort or extending oneself to the point of fatigue to the point of being exhausted this is how they served one another in the lord this is how they were laboring to preach the gospel of the lord jesus christ they labored to the point of being exhausted because they first and foremost loved the lord jesus christ and that is always the order by the way in the bible it is not love for men first and love for God second. It is love for God first and secondly love for men. 
Because they love God, they sounded out the gospel. Because, secondly, they loved men. We see these are the two great commandments, right? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And it's always that order. They had a work of faith, a labor of love. Furthermore, Paul praises their patience, meaning steadfastness of hope. It was their hope in Christ that inspired their steadfastness, inspired them to persevere and endure tribulations for the cause of Christ. The word hope means confidence or unwavering certainty about something or someone. Because they were sure about the unchanging promises of God regarding Jesus Christ, regarding the future. Their lives were anchored, and they were steadfast in their good works in the midst of persecution. Because they had their faith, their hope, and the sure promises of God Almighty. Rather than resorting to fleshly gimmicks, based on human motivations to mobilize this membership, the spirit-wrought virtues of faith, love, and hope will be filling their lives, producing work and labor and steadfastness. So we mark that a God-centered church has converted hearts that lead, secondly, to converted lives, lives that are different. When I first got to Delano seven years ago, there were people that were very faithful to the things of God. And I would like to assume they were faithful because they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. I would like to assume the best of everyone in my church. But the reality was some of them were doing labor for different reasons. Some of them were laboring because they wanted to fit in a social circle. Some of them were laboring because they weren't part of any other social group but the church, and so that's the reason they were laboring. And under the preaching of the Word of God, several church members were converted. People that were active in the ministry. But not because they were genuinely converted and God had changed their lives and they wanted to honor God in their works, but they were laboring with different motives that only they knew. And through the preaching of the gospel, it came to be revealed to them by the Spirit of God that they were unconverted church members. And God awakened them to their lostness, not to place their faith in what they did or a prayer they said, but God brought them to repentance of their own sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God changed their lives that they would have works, not for social reasons, but because of a genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ who saved them. A God-driven church has those who have converted hearts, changed lives, And number three, a God-driven church has clear doctrinal convictions. Look at verse four. By the way, this is a young assembly. It's not a church that's been around 50 plus years. It's a young church. Verse four. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. This work of God's saving grace so powerfully active in the lives of these Thessalonian believers. It was not traced back to the time they heard the gospel, as recorded in Acts 17. The Apostle Paul traces it all the way back in eternity past, when God the Father planned and chose to save them by His grace alone. 
I remember when Schwarzenegger was uh, voted in as governor. People in my family were debating, are you going to elect him? And someone stood up in our family while we were eating dinner at a family gathering and said, I'm going to vote for him. And I choose to elect him because he makes the best movies. (laughs) Brilliant, the scholar of the family. We may choose people because we think they're qualified. God doesn't choose people based on because they qualify. God does it out of grace. He doesn't have to extend grace to anybody. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And here the Apostle Paul moves them back and shows them the cause of their salvation is the election of the Father before time even began. Like Paul, we too must have clear convictions about this foundational truth of election that gives immeasurable glory to God and humbles the proudest man. The first truth indicated by the word knowing. Paul was certain of the divine election of the Thessalonian Christians and was not ashamed to declare it outright. He knew this because of the fact they have personal faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that they believe savingly in Christ, that their lives were changed. He knew that these Thessalonians chose Christ and they loved Christ. Why? Because as John says, we love him because he first loved us. And so it gives all the glory to God for their election. This is important to note that this is a young assembly. It's important to note because people occasionally say, I don't think you ought to even mention the word election. People are not ready to hear it. And yet here's a young church, and Paul's not afraid to discuss with them this important doctrine that gives glory to God for salvation and no glory to men. Paul believed in divine election, and he proclaimed it. The second key to this truth is expressed in the word beloved. The Thessalonians, as the elect of God, are also brethren beloved. The connection between election and God's love is repeated by Paul in his second letter to this same church. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Paul says, we give thanks to God for you, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you into salvation. Notice, he does not praise the Thessalonians. He doesn't say, man, praise be to you Thessalonians. You are so much smarter than the other pagans. You just figured out the gospel. You had that little, little spark. You had that little twinkle in your eye when the gospel came. All the Jews rejected the truth, but you, you figured it out. Boy, you are somebody. You have potential. Boy, you're someone great. You made a great choice. Hey, you deserve some credit. Let me shake your hand. No, he didn't. He didn't thank them for their election. He thanked the one who did the electing, which was God. He thanked the Lord that God chose them to salvation. Let us never forget that election is a doctrine of profound love. How can it be that God would choose us to set set his heart upon us lowly rebels against him? Long before we ever sought him, he loved us and sought us to be his own. 
This is truly the greatest love story ever written. Beloved, before time began, God chose to love us with an everlasting love. Salvation originates with His choice of us. It does not originate with our choice of Him. Yes, we do choose Him as the result of Him choosing us first. As Jesus said to His disciples in John 15, 16, Ye have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bear much fruit. That is not to deny the reality that Peter chose to follow Christ. This is not to deny the reality that Andrew chose to follow Christ. That is not to deny the the, the realness, the reality that these men chose to follow freely the Lord Jesus Christ. But what our Lord is saying, the reason they chose Christ was because the Lord, before time began, first chose them. The glory goes to God alone. The reason that we have chosen Him within time is simply because He first chose us before time. With unmistakable language, Paul states it this way in Ephesians 1.4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. As he told Israel in Deuteronomy 7, he loved them. Why? He, because he loved them. That's it. That's the reason why he chose to do so. Not based upon any foreseen human faith nor good works. God's choice is the exercise of his own sovereign will, selecting those whom he would save. Why? Because there's none that seeketh after God. They've all gone out of the way. They've together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Man naturally doesn't want the gospel. He doesn't want Christ. They all, but Pastor Castro, I did want Christ. Why? Because he loved you and chose you before time began. That is why. The psalmist notes in Psalms 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens, and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. The God-driven church has a very high view of God. No truth so elevates God and humbles man, then knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Knowing that God is the author and the finisher of our faith. What is the marks of a God-centered church? Converted hearts, changed lives, clear doctrinal convictions about the gospel, about the glorious grace of an electing God that would choose to have mercy on rebels like you and like me. Fourthly, the fourth mark of a God-driven church is convicting preaching. Convicting preaching. Look at verse number 5 with me. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and much assurance. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Foundational to the spiritual success of the church at Thessalonica and any biblical church is the primacy of the preaching of the Word of God. Before hearts are converted, before lives are changed, there must be biblical convicting preaching. As the pulpit is central to the church, so the gospel of Christ is central to the pulpit. The word gospel, euangelion, means the announcement 
of good news. It is the man who would go forth and herald the news of the coming king. So the preacher is the herald forth the gospel. He's not called upon to share, to kindly speak, but to declare the truth of the word of God, of the gospel, with authority, with boldness, the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Essential to faithful proclamation of the gospel are several components. The gospel must be preached intelligently. He says, for our gospel came not unto you in word only. Meaning, when he came, he preached with words. He came and preached He preached intelligently in a way that people could understand the truths about Jesus Christ. The apostle apostle communicated the gospel intelligently, factually, straightforwardly. He presented the word of God. Preaching must appeal to the entire person, the mind, the will, the emotion. It must inform the mind, inspire the heart, challenge the will. And so Paul, instructing young Timothy, told him how to preach. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Till I come, he told them, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Make sure you do reading. What is that? Reading the Word of God. Make sure you get up and you read the Word of God to the people. Make sure that there's doctrine, that is, the explanation of the Word of God. Read the Bible. Explain the Bible and then exhort, that is, apply the Bible. That's biblical preaching. The reading of the Bible, the explanation of the Bible, and the application of it. Paul came and declared the truth of the Word of God both intelligently but also powerfully. He says, but also in power. Convicting preaching is not boring rhetoric, it's not endless chatter. But the dynamic power of God displayed through God's messenger. The word power here, deutimus, refers to divine power. This is what Paul talked about in Romans 1.16 where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That is to say, the gospel has inherent power in and of itself. It has the power of God to convert sinners to bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel must be preached intelligently and powerfully and confidently. Paul said he delivered it, and in much assurance. Now this assurance is not self-generated positive thinking. Rather, it is God-given certainty. It is the certainty that if a man of God is walking with God, he's praying for God's word to impact, that God will always be faithful to his truth. That God is not a man that he should lie. The same God who said, so shall my word be, that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void. That is the assurance that he has as he gives up to deliver the word of God. He has confidence that God's word will accomplish much. No, is it preached intelligently and powerfully and confidently, but it, Paul was a role model of what God's Word did in his own life. For he wrote, As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Look at chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul continues to speak about the way he acted. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being effectually desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you 
not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Here we see that the preacher and teacher's message and life cannot be separated. What Paul preached, that he lived. The same love he encouraged and exhorted others to have, he had for the Thessalonian church himself. Despite all the modern technology that we have, God is still pleased to use the preaching of his word. For after that, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So we see here that they, this God-driven church had converted hearts. It had changed lives. It had clear doctrinal convictions. And it had convicting biblical preaching. The fifth mark is in verse 6, and that is of courageous commitment. Courageous commitment. Verse number 6. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. We also see that receiving the word of God sometimes and many times involves conflict. In Acts chapter 14, Paul says that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. So it was in the church at Thessalonica. Describing the persecution that accompanies faith, the apostle noted the high cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ as his disciple. The word affliction here means literally to crush, to compress, to squeeze like grapes in a wine press. These believers were caught in persecution. Why? Because they had repented. They had turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. Interesting that from the city of Thessalonica, you could see Mount Olympus 50 miles away. That's where all the so-called Greek gods live, Zeus and all the others that were part of a soap opera up there. And they turned their back on all their gods, those false gods. And as a result of them, I'm sure many of them lost their jobs. Many of them suffered alienation from their family. But they were willing to do that because they turned from idols in order to serve the true and living God. When they renounced their empty pagan religion, they turned their back on this evil world system. We sing that song, and I'm sure you do as well, standing on the promises of God. Right? We sing about the blessed promises of God. Well, here's a promise for you. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Say, well, I'm never persecuted by the guys at work. I don't think you read the verse correctly. All that will live godly. You cuss it up with the boys, you watch the same movies, you live an unseparated life, no wonder you get along with the world, and the world likes you. You live different from the world. You talk different from the world. You're sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ. There are going to be many unsaved people that don't like you. They don't like your narrow-minded, bigoted religion. You'll be labeled intolerant. You'll be labeled politically incorrect. You'll be labeled this and that. You will be persecuted for the cause of Christ. Jesus said himself in John 15, 18, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. 
Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. The world does not like biblical Christianity. And the Christianity that the lost world likes is not biblical Christianity. All of a sudden, here's a person who's a very open-minded person. They're very tolerant of everybody. They believe in, and not a, there's many ways to God. They believe that God is love. And they even get a tingle when they say that. They are so open-minded. All of a sudden, Christmas season comes. And you send them a track. How dare you give me this bigoted religion about Jesus being the only way. Don't you know you've got to be tolerant and loving? It's not right to hate! So I didn't know that it was, oh, I should be tolerant like you. What happened? Where's the tolerance at? Where's the love at? The reality is they're tolerant for anything but the truth of the gospel. The very message that we're called to proclaim. God help us when we become so worldly that the world begins to think, man, you're cool. (laughs) Man, I like the way you live. Because you live no different than me. The Bible promises all those who live godly, they will suffer persecution. This was true true of this God-driven church, and it will be of every biblical church. But it takes courageous commitment to the truth, which they had. And God help us that we will have. Number six, the next mark of a God-centered church is contagious faith, verses 7 and 8. Verse number 7. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, regardless of the mounting persecution upon this church at Thessalonica. They remained faithful in witnessing. Think about it. People say, well, they're going to pass laws, as they did, I heard, in certain parts of Canada, where if a person speaks out against homosexuality, they would be considered a hate monger, and they're going to, it would be considered hate speech, and they arrested a pastor because of that. He said, well, those laws come to the United States, and Christians are going to be persecuted for, for, for sharing their faith. What's going to happen? Well, if you're honest, in most Christians' life, nothing's going to happen. Because you don't share it anyways. What's going to happen? What's, what's going to be different? Nothing. You're going to go to work, come home, and not care that you pass many, many eternal souls headed to an eternal lake of fire. But not this church. In spite of opposition, they faith, they could not be silent. They had to share the gospel where they went. The gospel message, the Bible says here, sounded out loud and clear. So the word sound, translated sounded out means to blast forth, to sound forth intensely. It is used of a trumpet giving a certain sound. It is used of the sound of thunder. The perfect tense form of this Greek word indicates that the church's bold, continual trumpeting of the gospel. This wasn't a one-time act. It wasn't done just on a certain time of the year. It was a continual activity of this church. They trumpeted out 
the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, while awaiting the trumpet of Christ to sound, they were sounding out the trumpet for Christ of the gospel. Note that the gospel and call included the teaching of repentance, verse 9. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you. How ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turn from idols. Uh, uh, can, I, can I be saved, preacher? Uh, uh, but, but, but I have this, this is one thing here. I'm living with my girlfriend and I don't want to change that. She's an idol. She's an idol. She doesn't come first. If you're not willing to repent of your sin, you're not willing to embrace Christ by faith. So the answer is no, you can't become a Christian. Oh, I'm, uh, but, but I have this one problem, said this, this man that I met. We're out door knocking. My wife and I are giving out gospel tracts. And he invited us in and told us we'd come back to present the gospel to him. So we came back, took our time, and went through it. By his mannerisms, you can tell he was a homosexual. He says, all that you say is true. And I really, really believe that. But I have this small little problem. This small little thing. I love another man just like you love your wife. My wife's going to tear off her hair when she heard that. I said, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. So, so, so it's just a little different. So do I have to give that up? Because I'm not going to give that up. Now the average preacher would say, you know what? Don't worry about that. Just let Jesus in your heart and he'll clean you up. Use some, some salesmanship, smoothly sign. And pretty soon, man, he's praying the sinner's prayer whether he likes it or not. The truth of the matter is, we're not to deceive men. To tell them very clearly, if you turn to God, by faith in Jesus Christ, you will turn from idols. And you will turn from that sexual morality you're involved in. There will be repentance when there's faith. And if there's no repentance, my friend, you don't have real faith. That's the truth. Now this, well, just, you know, just easy. One, two, three, just open the door. Jesus will slide on in. No, it doesn't work that way. There must be a turning from idols and a turning to Jesus Christ, who is Lord, and must be received as such. Listen, according to scriptures, this is the repentance that must be part of the gospel. This was part of their message that they gave out. Remember in 2 Kings in chapter 7, how the Assyrians surrounded Samaria, how God came and wiped them out with an angel, and how they, the king ended up running home, Sennacherib. And all of a sudden we find these four leprous men who were dying as the, men, the people that were in Samaria were dying of famine, no food. They said, if we go into the city, they're going to kill us. If we go to the enemy, they will kill us. But at least maybe they'll have mercy and give us some food. And so they, not knowing, that God cleared out the army at nighttime, these four leprous men, in society's eyes, good for nothing, went to get some food, to cast themselves at the mercy of the enemy. But the enemy was gone. They arrived there, and they look. The enemy's gone and left all their money and food. They were going tent to tent, not door to door, but tent to tent. Gathering food, eating and feasting. Man, they were at one of the first hometown buffets. It was nonstop. You want to talk about gluttony. Man, they were eating and eating. They were, boy, just having the time of their lives while people were starving to death in Samaria. So bad. The Bible gives us an account where women begin to eat their children. Cannibalism. 
It was bad. And there they were eating. All of a sudden, then said one to another, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings. And we hold our peace. This is not good. This is a day of good news when we should be telling others, but all we're doing is hoarding up the food for ourselves. We do not well. This day is a day of good tidings, good news. It is a day of gospel, of good news. So they ran to the city and simply told them where the food was. I'm here to tell you how many lepers, spiritual lepers, have come to faith in Christ and they do not well. For they sound out not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not called to be an evangelist. I didn't say anything about being an evangelist. Just being like a leopard who found food, telling another person where that spiritual food is. Christ said he was the manna, he was the bread come from heaven, John chapter 6. The woman in John chapter 4, the woman of Samaria, who had been converted by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, after having having been married and divorced five times, and living with a man who wasn't her husband, yet Jesus, as a rabbi, a rabbi would never speak to a woman in public, yet Jesus spoke to her. Uh, A man would never speak to a woman in public, yet Jesus did. A Jew would never talk to a Samaritan, yet Jesus did. Jesus set his saving love upon her, saved her. The first thing she does is not go to a soul-winning clinic. The first thing she does is she goes back into Samaria, tells him of this man, the Messiah, that she has found. She didn't know many Bible verses. She was, in, uh, she was intrigued in salesmanship. But she knew this, that this man, Christ Jesus, had saved her soul. If that is your testimony. And if a church is going to be a God-driven church, you must trumpet out the gospel. It is not an option. It is not the job of Pastor Smith to do all the work of the ministry. In fact, his job, according to Scripture, is to train you for the work of the ministry in the book of Ephesians. What is the work of the ministry? Yes, it is to edify one another, but it's also to preach the gospel, to give the gospel out, to sound it forth that other sinners, that God in His sovereign grace will bless His gospel, which He will, and bring many sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. We can say we want a God-driven church tonight. But what are you doing about it? Do you want these marks to be true of you? To be true of your church? God help us that they will be. Let's pray. 